Women Overcoming Adversity. We started with Hannah, I'm sorry, we started with Naomi, really, when we did a series on the book of Ruth, and sort of realized then in the continuation of this, looking at some of these other Old Testament women, that it's not very difficult to find a number of women in the Old Testament, like Naomi, who faced difficulties and problems, and then begin to inquire, how was it that they overcame? And as I said earlier, to derive encouragement and strength from that. Of course, when you think back to Naomi, we recall that her problem was bitterness. We recall that she was, over, uh, was o- able to overcome that as God used various people, Ruth, Boaz, others, in order that the wonderful, powerful truth of God's providence might be reawakened in her life. Then we looked at a woman by the name of Rahab. And by the way, you've probably noticed, and I, I selected these additional three women on purpose because basically all of these women are living at roughly the same period in biblical history. They're either living during the period of the judges or just before in the case of Rahab. Rahab, of course, had the difficulty and adversity in her life of shame, and it was wonderful to see and refresh in our hearts and minds how that can be overcome by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and the beautiful story there of how Rahab experienced that in in her life. Last week, we took a look at Deborah and saw that she face the adversity, the trial, the difficulty of lagging leadership. And it, it is still a problem, I think, that's with us today. But she overcame that by rising to the challenge that God put before her and by honoring biblical principle wherever she could in the role that God gave her. And she was able to be successful for the Lord in overcoming that problem and that adversity. We're going to finish tonight, this seven-week stretch, with looking at Hannah. And the message tonight is entitled, Hannah Overcoming barrenness barrenness think about that subject in the bible it it might not be one that really you would take time to ponder except as maybe you come across somebody who has that difficulty or that problem in their life i once again have to to give some disclaimer at the outset of the message sometimes these messages are tricky to preach because you never quite know when someone in your audience is uh, feeling something in this uh particular venue of topic that you wouldn't have any way to really know. I, I desire to, dr- to treat this tonight with all compassion and tenderness and to encourage people here tonight because in Hannah we can see an overcomer. And when I say an overcomer, I'm not just talking about the fact that the story has a happy ending. I'm talking about the fact that Hannah was successful in being able to overcome this trial in her life. And in addition to that, we thank God that the story has a happy ending. But when you look at this subject in the Bible, you're talking about a subject that was one that brought to a woman deep personal sorrow. And in the culture and times of the Bible, it would also bring a certain degree of shame and reproach along with it. So let's do a little analysis. This is just to furnish what hopefully is some helpful background. And uh, as we look at the message tonight and consider this particular subject so that we've got everything we need to really plug in to the story of Hannah and see what happens. But did you ever stop to think about the fact, and and this is obviously by divine intent, and I can't explain all of that, but barrenness is something of a motif in the Old Testament. It's something of a theme that runs along in the Old Testament, and particularly in the lives of prominent Old Testament women. Did you ever think about that? If I've counted correctly, you'll find seven cases of this in the Bible. Six cases are in the Old Testament. And when I talk about prominent women, let me rehearse the list for you ever so quickly. Three of 
the six that we find in the Old Testament are actually the wives of the patriarchs. So we think about Sarah, who at first experienced barrenness in her life. We think of Isaac's wife, Rebecca. She experienced this very same problem. Rachel, who was one of the two wives of Jacob, also experienced this problem. Then we move forward a little bit in time, and we are in the period of the judges, and we come across a woman, we don't know her name. We only know her husband's name. He was Manoah. But she was kind of became very well known to us as the mother of Samson. She originally experienced this problem as well. And then you have a story that is a little further on into the Old Testament, and usually it's developed in the book of Kings, but I love this story. I just don't have time to get into tonight. That's a temptation. Just have to avoid that temptation here tonight. But it's such a tremendous story about the Shunammite woman in the time of Elisha. So there are six of them right there. Then you come over into the New Testament, and you have the one example, you have Elizabeth. And she was, of course, the mother of John the Baptist. So that gives us a total of seven. Now, here's another observation that you can make. It was, in in this motif, as we consider it in the Bible and in the Old Testament in particular, it was often the precursor of some special blessing from God. And you can think about that. I think that readily comes to you. But, you know, here's the problem. It's easy for us to stand here in 2021 and look back at the history of the Bible and make an observation like that and and say, with with some degree of self-righteousness, I would think, well, those women should have realized. Well, How much better do you and I do? That's my question. I don't think we do a whole lot better. My hat's off to these women. This is a deep struggle that they bore. And many has been the time that I've gone into that closet. There's a special closet you go. I have it. And it has a little thing you pull like a gong. And when you pull that gong, there's a boot behind you and it kicks you in the seat of the pants. I should have known that. I should have done better than that. I should have realized that biblical truth, but we don't do that sometimes. Speaking of the shame and reproach that often was connected with this, I I think it's really interesting how one writer puts this. Here's the quotation. Often these biblical women suffered deep shame as a consequence. Their barrenness attributed to some hidden wrong, sin, or flaw. And we can certainly see this in the case of Rachel when Jacob comes out of the field one evening. Now, think about Jacob for a moment. I I sort of pity him on this, too. I don't know what he was supposed to do, but his wife looked at him and she says, this is how it says in the King James Version, give me children or I die. Well, what? I mean, he knew the problem wasn't with him, so... He doesn't know what to say. But if you put that in rough colloquial terms today, it would be something like this. Give me children or I'm dead. Think about that. Think of the anguish of soul that that reflects when somebody makes a statement like that. Then as that chapter, Genesis chapter 30, proceeds and we read the story of the Lord working in her life and giving her her first child who was Joseph, She makes this comment, God has taken away my reproach. That's in Genesis 30, verse 23. And it's the same way with Elizabeth. When you come to the New Testament, when she finally conceives, and this is like 
Sarah. It's, it's in old age. It's past the time anybody would have ever thought something like this could happen. And she finally conceives, and this is what she says in Luke chapter 1, verse 25, Thus hath the Lord done for me in the day when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Now, beloved, I'm going to depart from this introduction, but after I say one more thing, this story has a happy ending. And I believe that we will be able to see this. What I want to do is tell the story by navigating us through three points. I want to talk about Hannah's trials. I want to talk about her blessings. I want to talk about her response. When we get to that third part, Hannah's response, that's really kind of the of the, the keynote of this tonight. But I would say this to you, whether it's this problem or some other problem, we have to overcome it or it will overcome us. We either find God's grace sufficient and find an answer to the problem or they turn us into bitter people, angry people, and defeated people. But adversity will come, whether it's this or whether it's something else. So let's take a look because Hannah is an overcomer. First of all, Hannah's trials. Well, her trial is obvious, and this is almost a little bit like Rahab, except that it's a different adversity that she's facing. It's like Rahab in this sense. The writer doesn't waste any time introducing you to the problem. It's obvious that the writer wants us to focus on this. He wants us to see it because this is what this, is going, this chapter is going to be about. And so look at uh, the first chapter where we were reading a moment ago, and boom, here it is right away in verse number 2. And Penina had children. This is at the end of the, of the verse. But Hannah had no children. I mean, how more blunt can you get? I mean, it's not lacking in compassion. It just puts it right out there. Hannah had no children. Then we come down to verse number 5. And again, at the end of that verse, it says, the Lord had closed her womb. So there are two different expressions that sometimes are used in the Old Testament, but this explains to us within the first five verses, you don't miss it. It's right there. You see it right away. The writer points it out. But there is something more. That's problem enough, don't you think? That's enough to bear. But as if it weren't enough to bear, she has another load of grief that's added to this, and that person's name, yeah, it's a person. That person's name is Penina because it turns out that Penina is a deeply jealous competitor. Now, in many ways, folks, that shouldn't surprise us because that, again, that is what took place between Rebecca and Leah. I'm sorry, Rachel and Leah. There was that at odds with one another that was there. But I think you have in Penina a particularly grievous case and I have to tell you, there is something we can learn from this, whether this is our problem or not. The Paninas of life are, seem like they're always there. And you're not going to escape them. Sooner or later, you're going to have a Panina. You might have a Panina at work. I hope you're not living with one. But there are Paninas, it seems like they are around every corner. And if you don't have one right now, praise the Lord. But you aren't off the hook yet because one will likely come sooner or later. Some things I think you can only learn certain ways, and God knows this, and that's why he allows these types of people to come into our lives. Now, it's possible that you have another parallel with the situation with Rachel and Leah, and that is that it may very well be that Hannah was the love of Elkanah's life. It may even be that he married her, 
And as a result of the fact that she could have no children and they had tried and tried and tried, in that culture it was extremely important to have children and to have heirs. And so it's possible that you have almost kind of a repeat of another situation with the patriarchs where in Abraham's case, Sarah couldn't have children. And what did ultimately happen instead of continuing to hold on to the promise of God? And folks, I'm cognizant once again as I say this, it's easy preaching and hard living. But instead of holding on to the promise of God, then Hagar came onto the scene, and what a mess ever since. That's just been a tremendous mess. So it's possible that the other wife, Penina, came along as a result of the problem that Hannah had. Whatever the the truth of the matter, we can't prove that one way or another. I would make the observation that Penina proved to be three things. Number one, she proved to be pitiless. Number two, she proved to be heartless. And number three, she proved to be relentless. And where do I get this? Let's look at verse number six and have a look at what kind of a person she was. The Bible even calls her a rival. And her rival used to provoke her. Well, to me, somebody that just wants to poke you in the eye all the time, somebody that just wants to provoke you, that type of person is pitiless. Particularly if they want to poke you in an area that they already know that you're sensitive. You know, I I may have shared with you on one occasion when I was a teenager, did a good bit with horses, and I got a lesson learned one day. You ever notice how a horse has an ability to flick its skin? A bug lands on there, and they they can flick their skin. I don't know how they do that. I don't think people can do that. At least I sure can't. But it's a way to get that fly uncomfortable so that they don't stay there too long and bite. Well, I was in a stall with with my particular mare, and I was young enough to be this stupid. I saw her do that down along her left flank. And so I thought, well, and I did that, and she flicked her skin some, and I did it again, and she flicked her skin some. And I went to do it the third time, and boom, I got kicked. And if you ever get kicked by a horse, I mean, you, you don't forget that. That's a memorable moment. I never did that again. But there are people who are like that. They'll just poke you right where you're sensitive. To me, that's pitiless to be that way. But I read on in the verse that she not only provoked her, but she provoked her grievously. So to me, this adds the heartless quality to it. And the relentless quality is also apparent because it says that she did this year after year. I mean, she just wouldn't go away. Well, folks, I would just simply say to you tonight, you know, everywhere you go, there seems to be a penina. And we might as well figure out how to deal with that, too, because those kind of people can... I mean, you either find a way to deal with those kinds of people or else you end up losing your cool. And I think particularly of something that Solomon said, that he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down without walls. And if you these people provoke you and you ultimately lose your cool, what are you going to do? You're going to say something you regret saying. You're going to act in such a way that you regret that later. And I'm always reminded of a story from the presidency of Ronald Reagan. But the date was March 8th, 1985. And Reagan had been invited to address the European Parliament. That's really quite a, quite a situation. Now, if you were, were living in those days and you remember the Reagan years and the Reagan presidency, then if not, you have to kind of just know this from history. It, it just kind of shocks me sometimes when I realize that there are many people sitting there listening to you now they weren't even born when Ronald Reagan was president. But 
there were a number of people in Europe that didn't really like Reagan. And I think that one of the reasons for this was they listened too long to the American press, never a wise thing to do. But they'd listened too long, I think, to the American press, and the American press often was hard on Reagan too, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that Reagan took a, such an uncom- uncompromising stance on the Soviet Union. Well, anyway, in this particular situation, he went to deliver his speech, and you know they made fun of him. They called his uh, ABM system anti-ballistic missile. Well, you wouldn't think of not having an ABM system today, right? But when Ronald Reagan first proposed this idea, they made fun of him for it and called the program, do you remember what the nickname for it was? Star Wars. So Reagan started into the speech, and there were, some, there were some people in the audience that were not at all in sympathy with the drift of his message, which was to point out Soviet aggression and what needed to be done and how in the past, especially in the European theater, there had been appeasement a la Neville Chamberlain and all of that with Hitler. And Well, anyway, so he, he took that tact in his speech. He wasn't going to back up from what he had to say to those people. So it didn't get too terribly long into the speech before someone or maybe multiple people booed. Well, that's not much fun when you're preaching and, or, or, or speaking. And, and, and so Reagan had a comment and, and deflected and went on. Well, then at another point in the message, some people got up and walked out. And, you know, Reagan had this unflappable quality to him. And Reagan stopped for a moment, looked. And this is totally unrehearsed. He just, and the, the quip that he made was this. You know, I've learned something useful. Maybe if I talk long enough in my own Congress, some of those people will walk out. Well, that's a good way to be able to deal with problems like that. So he continued the speech, and he got to a a sentence in the speech where he said, we do not aspire to impose our systems on anyone, nor do we have pat answers for all the world's ills. But our ideals of freedom and democracy, and at that moment, there were multiple people in the audience who started out, who started yelling, Nicaragua, Nicaragua. Well, you remember that, right? The, the Contra situation and all of that. And they weren't even accurate in what they were saying with that particular rebuttal to what they perceived him to be saying. But once again, Reagan stopped and, and just consummate poise. I, I, I wish I could be as good at it as he was. But consummate poise, he stopped and kind of cocked his head as if he were listening for something. And then he said, is there an echo in here? Well, it just totally disarmed the whole situation. I mean, what was tense for a few moments, all of a sudden the tension just went right out of it. In fact, a number of people in the audience started laughing because Reagan had just handled this thing so diplomatically and so well. Folks, that's a politician, I understand, but it takes a certain gift to do that. You and I have the grace of God, and that's what it really takes to to be overcomers in situations like that because the paninas in life are there. One quick other observation, whether we're talking about Rachel and Leah or whether we're talking about Hannah and Penina, you can certainly make an observation here that God knew what he was doing in the garden when the pattern that he set was one man, one woman for life. Two usually are a problem. And so we'll leave it at that. Let's talk about Hannah's blessings because here's the thing that I I really am impressed. This story just blesses me when I think about this because isn't it true that so often when you and I are in the midst of, of 
overwhelming trials, they tend to obscure the blessings that we have in life. And the first thing you know, I mean, the, the classic example from, from the last few weeks that we've looked at is Naomi. And not to at all minimize, I mean, she goes out and she has these horrendous experiences and trials, but she comes back and when the people of the town come out and they say, is this Naomi? And she says, don't even bother to call me that anymore. It meant pleasant. Call me Mara. It means bitter. She said, I went out full and came back empty. And here's Ruth. This is the woman who said, where you go, I will go. I'm not leaving your side. I'm cleaving to you. And she has this incredible asset here, this incredible blessing given to her from God. I remind you, Orpah went back. Ruth didn't. But she says, I went out at full and came back empty. It's like she can't see that even at that point, God had put this compensating fullness in her life and she didn't understand it and she didn't see it. How many times have you and I gone down that, that same road and what are the blessings that we can see here? Well, I, I mean, I don't know all the blessings that God put in her life, but I see an obvious one here, and that's Elkanah. Because everything I can figure out from looking into Elkanah was Elkanah was a good man. And if I think about this, why it, I'm impressed to make this point is because particularly in the days and the context in which Hannah was living, the days of the judges, you know good men were in short supply? I mean, we've, we've seen that consistently, right? We saw it last week in the story of Deborah. That, that good men are hard to come by, and particularly men who are spiritual leaders. But Elkanah was exactly that kind of person. Especially now you have also in this story a comparison because you have Eli and his two sons. And I mean, these two sons of Eli, I mean, they are like zeros with the rim rubbed out. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And here they were the priests of the Lord. But Hannah's got a good man. And I see some qualities in this man that I'd like to point out just very quickly, if you don't mind. I see him, first of all, as being a spiritual man because I look in verse number 3 and it says, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord. That, 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 that says a lot to me. As a pastor of many years, I can tell you, I spent a lot of time and prayer trying to encourage people, and especially men, to be spiritual leaders in their homes and to lead their, their wives and their children in, in, in family altar and devotions. And, and not to have it be one of those situations that seems like we see so much of where it's the, it's the wife taking the initiative. It's the, it's the wife having to bring the, ch- the kids to the church because the husband's a spiritual deadbeat and doesn't really see any importance in church. Now, this man takes the initiative in that, and that's, a, that's something to say in the days of the judges. He was a spiritual man, and even when you get down to verse 23, which is part of what we didn't read, and Hannah has this plan. She says, I'm not going up this year because... I'm not going up until I wean this child because we made a commitment. He belongs to the Lord. And Elkanah responds to her in, I think, a way that reveals something of his spirituality when he says, do what seems best to you. This is verse 23. Wait until you have weaned him only. May the Lord establish his word. I mean, this is basically Elkanah saying, I'm fine. The only thing we've got to be careful of is is that we don't jeopardize God's plan and what he's promised to do in the life of this child. I just want God's word to be fulfilled. That, that to me, is a, 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 real, a really good example, uh, particularly when I put it up against the backdrop of 
Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. I see this man to be a loving man. In fact, that statement is made. I think that means a lot to, to, to all of us, whether we're men or women. But it says in verse number 5, But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Now, but look, if that's not impressive enough, look at the next part. He loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. So what does that say to you? Well, what it says to me is he loved Hannah for Hannah. Not for her looks, not for what she could do or couldn't do, not for the positive qualities, not for the negative qualities. They're always, look, folks, every one of us has warts. There's no perfect marriage. There's no perfect husband. There's no perfect wife. We all have our blemishes. We all fail. We all, at times, lose our cool. And we bomb out on occasion. This man loved his wife. It didn't matter. And she loved her husband. I'm sure it didn't matter. That's impressive to me. He's loving. He's caring. It says... In tenderness, I think, this reflects the fact that they would go up to that yearly feast and he, I'm sure he knew that Panana was the devil, Panina was the devil on wheels. Gave her a hard time. And so he gave her a worthy portion. That was, it, it, it translates to a double portion. He was trying to be an encouragement to her however he could. He had a certain care and concern, though I think he was really powerless to solve the problem. What was he supposed to do to Panina? Say, shut up. Well, he might have. It's not recorded. But then he might have had some other problems, too. So we don't have any knowledge of that. He's obviously encouraging from what we read here. But I like another point to make real quick before we leave this, and that basically is this. The man is an encourager. And what more, what better role really can we think about as husbands and wives, as spouses, to be encouragers because there come those days in the life of all of us. It doesn't really matter when you're discouraged, when you're down. And here's Hannah, year after year, facing this problem. She can't produce. She wants to be able to do this for herself and for her husband. She can't do that. Panina is all over her case all the time. She's in bitterness of soul. She's discouraged. When you're in that shape, you need somebody to be an encourager. You don't need another Panina in your life. You need an encourager. And I think that's what he's doing when you read this in verse number 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why and why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Well, I don't think he was trying to overestimate his own grandeur. I don't think he was a narcissist. I think that he basically was just trying to encourage her and, and to get her eyes off the one deficit and to see that God had put some blessing in her life regardless well, we have to hasten, and so let's look at this last thing here because this is really the, the thing I want you to take away, Hannah's response. Well, under the circumstances as we've seen them tonight, wouldn't it be easy to be bitter? Wouldn't it be easy to be discouraged? I think it would. Hannah doesn't do that. In fact, what she does is she prays, and when we look at her prayer, her prayer is exemplary. Now, if we go back to Genesis chapter 25, I think I have this verse here for you, but... This is kind of interesting because I mentioned a while ago that the three patriarchs' wives all had this problem occurring in their life. But it's only Isaac that you read that does this. And she's following that example. Verse 21 of Genesis 25 says, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Folks, that's a mouthful. 
Especially when you think about Abraham and the deal with Hagar or Sarah. It was her idea, but, you know, the husband's responsible. And then you think about the fiasco with Rachel and Leah and get into all that bickering back and forth and the mandrakes and all that business. And it, it just, it's a fiasco of the first order. You don't have that here. You have an example here. And she looks back. It's, it's really interesting. If you, if you do character studies, and I've done a number of these, the life of Abraham, the life of Jacob, the life of Joseph, it's a little more challenging to do the life of Isaac because we're just not given as much information on the life of Isaac. But boy, one of the things that this is a, a revealing insight is the man prayed when he met his problem. So does Hannah. Let's give five quick observations about this prayer of hers because I said it was exemplary. Number one, it's fervent. Look at verse 10. Are you going to doubt fervency when you read this? She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. This is no penny any prayer. This is not just something you mouth off kind of out of rote. This is somebody who, who let me put it to you this way. You know, in the Old Testament, they fasted, Right? We don't see very much in the New Testament about that, and I'm not up here promoting fasting tonight. I, I got the bright idea to do that one year in our church and promoted that, and I got to about mid-afternoon, and I felt lousy. And I went home, and I told my wife, whose bright idea was this? But I think one thing you can certainly take away and you can certainly get out of it is that to fast is a certain way of making it obvious not just to others, which they're really not doing it for their benefit either anyway, but making it apparent to the Lord that you really mean business in this prayer. And that's the way this prayer is. I mean, she's really in earnest about this thing. And I think I have for you James 5.17, but you know this verse, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, a righteous woman availeth much. And sometimes I think it behooves us to examine our prayers. Do we really get serious about our prayers or do we just mouth off a few words and say well i've done my prayer time secondly her prayer is unselfish if you look at verse number 11 she vowed a vow and said "O lord of hosts if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son then i will give him to the lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head well that's the that's a nazarite type context is what your what the reference to the razor is but you know also in the book of james we're reminded about something that's a roadblock to successful praying and that's when we ask selfishly to consume it upon our lusts james chapter 4 and verse number 3 you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions but there's none of that in this and i tell you something folks i've seen this over the years I've known people who were in earnest about their children finding a, a spouse and marrying, but they had no thought of really dedicating, surrendering their children to the Lord because what they really had in mind was their kids to live right there next door in the same town. The, grand, the grandkids are three blocks away. They can always see the grandkids. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with any of that. Please don't misunderstand me. But if you got up there and you started talking about, well, what if God calls your son or your daughter, daughter to serve him in a place that's far off? Uh-oh. You done quit preaching and going to meddling now. You start that kind of talk. 
But her prayer was unselfish, and her husband was in league with her. They both agreed on this. Next, number three, it was personal. To the point when you look at verses 12 and 13, what do you see? Well, you see Eli, he thinks she's a wino. She, he thinks she's drunk. He wasn't too sharp, was he? Anyway, that's what he thought. And so when he goes to her, frankly, I find Eli something of an enigma because when you read this interchange between these two, you find that he's not exactly reticent to rebuke her for what he thought was her overindulgence in alcohol. Well, how come he couldn't do that with his sons? And then later on we read about him blessing her and saying, the Lord of hosts give you your request. Well, if he could admonish and bless, how come he couldn't admonish over here and lay down some fire? He's a weird one. He paid for it, too. But the reason she's not, she's moving her lips, but there's no sound coming out. The reason is, is because this is a personal matter between her and God. And folks, not that it's wrong to share things with people, but you know the point that I want to make here is there's another closet that you need to have. Not just that one I told you about a while ago with the boot. You need to have another closet. And Jesus described that one. That's your prayer closet. You need to have a place that you get along with God. And it's it's certainly not wrong. It's often very encouraging to pray with other people. But each of us needs that personal time with God in which we pray. And we get into that, that mode where we're personally involved with God. And there is no distraction. There are no outside situations. And it's not for show. And it's not for ostentation, which is exactly what... Jesus was talking about when he said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Listen to this. You know, Spurgeon became alarmed on one occasion. You know, Spurgeon had a college, and he had these preacher boys, the students. Well, on one occasion, there was one student who got up and prayed. Now listen to this. This is a classic. O thou that art encinctured with an auriferous zodiac. Do you even know what those words mean? Encinctured. Auriferous. Zodiac, I know. The other two I had to look up in the dictionary. The Spurge became greatly alarmed about this particular young man and admonished him about this, but that's not what prayer is for. It's not to show off. You go into your prayer closet. Number four, it was effective. And this is why I said a moment ago, Eli is something of an enigma. But obviously, once she shares with him in verses 17, 18, 19, 20, what's going on, the burden that she has, he blesses her. And obviously, God blesses her too because that's the way that particular section concludes. And lastly, it is thankful. Now, in this particular case, you have another great point to be made. And you also have a parallel with Deborah because you have that great victory that God gives, but then you have that chapter and that, that hymn of praise to God. Well, when you get into chapter 2, we didn't read any of this, but I think you all know that there is what you have, Hannah, in this outpouring of praise to God, this outpouring of thankfulness. Verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation and Kind of the theme of her prayer as she goes through is these startling reversals that God is able to effect. He's able to bring down the mighty and exalt those who are of low degree. He's able to enfeeble the well-fed and enrich the hungry. 
And then she kind of gets to the thing that's really on her heart, verse number 5. She says at the latter part, The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. She doesn't stop and forget like we so often do to give praise to God. You're going to see those verses up there from Luke chapter 17. Let me summarize really quickly. You know, Jesus was a master teacher, and one of the techniques that he consistently used was pungent questions. And this story contains one of them. It's, it's hard to get away from the power of this question. These ten lepers who appeal to the Lord for forgiveness, he heals them. They all go on about their merry way and never think to say anything in terms of thanks or praise to God, except for one, and he's a Samaritan. And Jesus asks the question, were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? And did you ever think how guilty you and I are of that consistently? I mean, we call in for a prayer request. It never dawns on us to call back and say, God answered my prayer. Oh, it, it dawns sometimes. Don't I understand. But so often, I mean, it's so important to give praise to God. So what is my message tonight? Let me, let me just bring this to a head. I'm not ignoring, and I want to make this abundantly clear, so if you've been sleeping the last 10 minutes, please wake up and hear this. I'm not ignoring medical or practical considerations with this particular problem. It's obvious that practical considerations are even reflected in the text. When in verse 9, it's 19, it says they rose early and went back and Alcana knew his wife and she, the Lord remembered her. It's obviously that, obvious they followed through on what God had encouraged them about in the normal way that, that husbands and wives do this. And God blessed that. And there are more qualified people to talk to you about bioethical procedures, but I'll tell you this. We live in a day when amazing things are available. Not all of them are good. But we live in a day like this, and within the boundaries of what's ethical and what's biblical, you have some amazing resources. But my message is this. What is inspiring in Hannah and what I'm pleading for tonight when adversity of whatever kind comes into our lives is a spiritual, godly, appropriate response to our problems and making the observation tonight that prayer is a great but often overlooked resource. Prayer is the tool of real overcomers. And even if we think about medical considerations, let me end here. Always make God your first responder. Father, we thank you tonight for the privilege of looking at yet another encouraging example of a heroine of the Old Testament, someone who faced adversity but overcame the tremendous asset that prayer is in that respect, and thank you that at the same point the story had a happy ending. Sometimes we don't always get what we ask for, but prayer taps us into the resources that we need to overcome. May we take this away tonight, those things that were from you, treasure them and store them in our hearts and lives. Anything that was not, may we soon forget. For Jesus' sake.
perfect song to end with tonight. We can trust in God because he makes no mistakes and rejoice in him. Let's stand together and sing 680, Rejoice in the Lord. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you on Wednesday. You're dismissed.